You can get early access to the podcast episodes and watch them in full-on video at patreon.com slash Rene Ritchie or watchnebula.com slash Rene Ritchie. I love breaking the rules with the iPhones. I've had my iPhone at minus 50, minus 60. I've had them completely frozen solid. And I've had them the other end of the spectrum, like, you know, uh, in Death Valley or in Namibia, in the deserts, in the middle of summer at plus 50 degrees Celsius or, you know, in excess of 115 Fahrenheit, 120 Fahrenheit. And yeah, eventually they conk out and come right back to life. Let's plug them in again. Ray's Ahab is extreme. Explorer in residence for the Royal Canadian Geographic Society, he's not content to simply run marathons or ultra marathons, to bike trails or mountains. No, Ray wants to run and bike continents, put foot and wheel to the world. The Sahara Desert, 70 kilometers a day for 111 days, 400 kilometers across Canada, the Arctic, Namibia, Baffin Island, the Kamchatka Peninsula in Russia, Death Valley, the Amazon, and the list goes on and on and on. What I love most about Ray, though, is that he doesn't just go off on all these grand extreme adventures alone. It isn't just about beating nature or himself. No, his nonprofit, Impossible to Possible, brings students from around the world along with him, sometimes physically, often virtually. It lets them be part of the adventure. And he uses a lot of Apple technology to do it. The Mac to edit and share videos and chats, the iPhone to record his explorations, and the Apple Watch to literally help keep him alive. What Ray does is fascinating and inspiring, but I just had to find out more about how and why he does it. My goal is to cover as much distance as I can while I'm typically in places that really are very infrequently yeah. visited, if ever. And so I'm navigating across vast open landscapes, mountains, deserts, canyons, whatever it is, thick forests, uh, in as straight a line as I as I can uh, to get my to get to the other end. And and by virtue of doing this entire trip, communicate uh, the expedition and use the expedition as sort of a platform for schools around the world to sort of tap in and see what this part of the world looks like when you're crossing it on foot. So one of the things that fascinated me is how you've started or how you've brought the Apple Watch into, into your training and, and into your actual exploration. You know, it's interesting. I, um, uh, you know, I fell into Apple Watch in a really interesting way. I met some of the folks uh, in California from Apple many, many years ago after running the Sahara. So that would have been 2007, 2008 timeframe. And some of the content that we were, uh, that was shot on, it was, a, it was an Academy Award-winning filmmaker, yeah. actually, James Mall, that shot that. They used some of that footage in Final Cut Pro tutorials, I believe, back in that day. In starting my foundation, Impossible to Possible, which is based in California, the goal of that organization is free of charge to take young people around the world on expeditions where they learn about a place, connect yeah. it to students in schools. And we use, obviously the best technology we can get our hands on. So we're using MacBook Pros uh, to create content. We're using iPads, um, you know, in, in, uh, uh, in many different ways. And especially now with augmented reality, that's expanded. We're using these tools to create the best content that we can to upload. So I became familiar with a lot of the Apple devices and then what, you know, iPhone 3, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? On until where we are now with the iPhone 11 Pro. But it was, I think, Apple Watch. Maybe it was the second Apple Watch. Somebody came to me and mentioned it from the Apple team. Said, "Hey, listen, you know, you got to try this out for your run." And I'm thinking to myself, 
I, you know, no disrespect, but honestly, <laughs> the phone does everything I need. I have the iPad. I have my MacBook. I mean, what is that watch going to do, yeah. really, that the other things aren't already doing? Like, it's just too much technology kind of thing is where my head was going. And then I got the Apple Watch. I think I started with the three. And I was like, now I can't live without it, right? It's attached to my wrist all the time. And so I think first and foremost, from a person who does what I do, the trains full time, is constantly on the go. It does everything, you know, it, it's doing everything for me and it's, and it's instantaneous, but it also tracks health data, which is critical to me. So right off the top, I can run, I can run my business, but I, I, you know, can communicate with people from my watch when I'm out training. I'm catching important emails or texts. Some people want to be completely disconnected, but there's some days when I just, when you're a volunteer in your own organization, yeah. you know, it's your time is like as precious as, um, you know, as, as the investment that's made. So I don't want to miss any important, you know, emails on those days. I can rely on my watch or I can turn it off and listen to my music if I want. Or I can collect heart rate data and all that stuff that that's useful to me. So right away from the very beginning, it's been very useful from those purposes. But you and I had the conversation on the bus that day about Apple Watch. And for me, how it's been a super effective tool for recovery. And I think yeah. what was so interesting about what Apple Watch was doing early on was I could take all of that data in the health app, et cetera, and activity apps and third-party apps and use the watch as a way to figure out, am I doing enough on the recovery end? Am I consuming enough calories? Am I getting enough rest? Am I doing the things I need to do so that I can get up, train harder the next day, da 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 so that I can get the job done? So right away, that's been the biggest value for me. Is is It's not necessarily how far have I ran today, but moreover, what's been the effect of the training on my body, you know, in the heavy training periods. So how do you do that? Because I think just looking at it, people can see like I stand when it says to stand. I try to get my 30 minutes of exercise in, fill that ring up. I can use the workout apps and I can read the readouts. But you were you were sort of doing math on that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I was able to, you know, by going in, there's some third party apps out there as well. I was able to um, determine my elevation gained on my runs. Uh, so really defining my workouts. And I train a lot by elevation, by how much I run uphill and downhill rather than the distance that I train. Yeah. So I go out to train for a specific period of time and elevation. And so those kind of you combine those two things and whatever distance is spit out at the end of my training, that's what my day is. I don't say to myself, well, I'm going to run 10 K today. Very rare. I, I say to myself, I want to get a thousand feet of, or, or 350 meters of climbing or whatever. in, and that's what I start out with. But using the activity app and, you know, there's sleep apps and there's all kinds of things I'm able to discern um, with a fair amount of accuracy what the load is on my body, what the training effect is on my body, and what the recovery effect is. So rather than it being – and I'm very – I'm in tune with my body and I listen to my body and I know what foods work for me and which don't. But what was interesting, what I figured out from the Apple Watch, I went through a period in my training where I just wasn't kind of feeling – this is pre-Apple Watch – where I was not really feeling – hundred percent. And I learned two things from my Apple watch that I wasn't getting enough sleep yeah. and, um, my room wasn't cool enough for me to get that sleep. So, I mean, I would have never figured this out and I was eating too late and I was able to figure that out by looking at all the data, mapping it out, mapping out how my runs went the next day. And I was able to correct 
my, uh, you know, my inefficiencies that I was having so that I could train better. And I, I don't want to get too scientific with it or whatever, but honestly, when you're running every single day and that's kind of like your job, you want to feel as good as you, as you possibly can. Right. Yeah. And so, and I'm not getting any younger, I'm 51. Right. So the more data I can get, the better I can train for to go. I just finished an Arctic expedition in uh, January. I was January up in the Arctic, self-contained, hauling all my gear. It's hard to do that. Yeah. So, you know, I want to be as fit as I can be. And I found that the data I get from the Apple Watch, you're able to really sort of figure it out. And it's it's intuitive because I'm not that smart. So like, if I you pick up a device and it's not easy, easy to use, I, you know, I have issues with that. Too many buttons, too many programs, too many this, too many that. Apple Watch, it's very, very easy to use, especially when you use it with your phone. So was it like an iterative process for you where you tweak something and like tweak your sleep or tweak the temperature and then see what improvements that made? Or were you able yeah, to sort of calculate exact, it out? You're, you're exactly right. That's exactly okay. what I did. I would take the data each day and I, you know, obviously you have up and down days anyhow. So I would scale it over the course of a month or two until I dialed it down to these things. And honestly, I had suspicions that I wasn't sleeping enough. Um, that's easy enough to find out. But what was really uh, interesting was being able to determine through trial and error and through the information that the Apple Watch was giving me that, you know, I was having issues with room temperature, eating late, yeah. um, things like that, right? And uh, calorie deficit earlier in the day because I was, you know, I wasn't eating enough earlier in the day. So I wasn't recovering amply from the workouts that I was putting in. So it was just all this real, like super simple information that you'd think would be, you know, common sense. But, you know, when you're in it every day and, you know, we got kids and we're busy and we're working all the time and like everybody is, yeah. you get busy, these things kind of fall to the side, but it's kind of like a little helper for you. You know? Yeah, and I think people talk a lot about using the Apple Watch for fitness and for workouts, but you don't hear them talking as much about taking the results from all of that, analyzing it, and applying it to things like recovery. Yeah, like literally, I, I it's such a it's, it's such an interesting perspective, and and same with my friends that I train with, uh, that I trail run with, that use Apple Watch for that. We all look at it as recovery information. Yeah. It's interesting, right? It's like. Horse before the cart, cart before the horse, right? Like <laughs> chicken or egg, egg or chicken. So it's just a different way of looking at the data, you know? And um, I'm less concerned about the metrics of the workout as I am about how am I recovering from the workout? Because every workout's hard. So I know I'm going to go pretty hard, but I can determine with a fair rate of accuracy now and intuitively because it's I've learned from the watch, I know when I start feeling funky – that, ooh, I better back it off today, Yeah, you know? So, yeah. you know, the other thing that's interesting you can do with it is you can do mapping. You can do basic navigation with the Apple Watch, which yeah. a lot of people don't know. So you can get uh, third-party apps, again, um, View Ranger. Okay. And, you know, from View Ranger with subscription, you can download maps, and you can download a route onto your map and then upload it or sync it, whatever the correct terminology is with your Apple watch. And then you've got that map and you can follow yourself on the map even more. So if you have LTE, but if you're synced through to your phone, which I always have my phone with me anyhow, because I train where I live, where I train yeah. it's remote wilderness immediately. I mean, there's black bears. You leave my yes. back door, there's black bears and wolves, right? So I always bring my phone for safety. Um, but also 
it's a spider's web of trails where I live. There's something you told me when last time I saw you too that just blew my mind. And that is, you know, a lot of my friends have an Apple Watch because they're afraid if they fall when they're hiking, you know, they won't be able to reach their phone or the fall detection will go off. Yep. And call. But you are literally at the ends of the earth and you were depending on the navigation data to actually get to your next food supply. Yeah. It, it, on that trip, I was through that specific section of my route. I was relying on it. And so it's amazing what it can do, um, you know, from that perspective. But even more amazing, like, you know, some of these other features like walkie talkie, if you're out with a group, right, yeah. and you still have cell phone reception, it works really well uh, to communicate with your other friends that you're trail running. If we're scouting different routes, right, uh, you know, we've or we can communicate with one another quite easily. So from a perspective of someone who's training and in the outdoors, there's other additional features besides the training stuff that when you really start digging into it, you and I were talking about the iPhone before, yeah. the 11 Pro. It wasn't until somebody from Apple told me, hey, if you put it on a tripod at night to take a night mode shot, the phone can detect that it's on a tripod and then it'll increase the exposure time to like 30, up to 30 seconds or something like that. It's crazy. So then you can get these amazing shots that you never thought possible, right? Same thing with the watch. I mean, one of the, one of the introductions I had to you was you explaining how you had to keep your phone next to your body so your body heat would keep it warm in the Arctic and you could take it out and take a few photos before burying it back next to you. Yeah, I love the whole uh, – the limits of the iPhone are whatever it says, zero degrees yeah. Celsius. And I love breaking the rules with the iPhones. I've had my iPhone at minus 50, minus 60. I've had them completely frozen solid. And I've had them the other end of the spectrum, like, you know, uh, in Death Valley or in Namibia, in the deserts, in the middle of summer at plus 50 degrees Celsius or, you know, in excess of 115 Fahrenheit, 120 Fahrenheit. And, yeah, eventually they conk out and come right back to life. Let's plug them in again. And it's amazing what I've been able to do. I think I showed you a piece of film footage when we were yeah. in Whistler, right? So that was the phone, wind chill minus 65. I think that was the iPhone, if I remember right, I think that was a 7 Plus. And, you know, that's just the iPhone held out there and it lasted whatever it was, 8, 9 seconds, right? Yeah. And it captured 4K24 in those temperatures. You see the wind, you see the ice crystals. It's amazing. I'm not recommending people go out and do that because it'll probably void a warranty or something. But it's amazing what they can do, you know? Well, and previously you would have needed, like, well, for your documentary, an entire film crew to do something like that with special equipment and special things to keep it running. And now you as an individual can – and I, I saw some of the footage. It is unbelievable looking for however long you managed to capture it. But I don't think that would, be, that would have been possible to capture before we had this kind of technology. No, I, you know, I mean, you consider last year when I, I attempted a, a transect of Kamchatka Peninsula in far east of Siberia, eastern Russia, middle of winter. My teammate from Italy, Stefano Gregoretti, and I. And I'll tell you, Renee, we had those iPhones cranking the whole time. We kept them against our body to keep yeah. them warm. Um, you know, we were filming every day. We filmed tons of footage, all of it 4K24. We didn't have accessibility. It would have been almost impossible or very expensive for a film crew to be out there. And our goal is to take this content and capture it and share it, you know, uh, with schools. That's the goal, right? Or anyone who wants to follow along on social media, whatever. So to be able to capture such amazing footage, right? When not that long ago, you'd need... I'm not, you know, it's not a red camera, it's, yeah. but you know, it's, you know, I'm not lugging an FS 700 or a DSLR. Yes. I'm just taking my phone. It's a lot easier to charge. And from a POV perspective, 
it's great for grabbing stuff, you know, it's great. And it, it does double duty. So I also in the remotest parts of the world have an app on my phone and satellite beacons called a began. And I'm able to sync my phone to diff- various devices that are satellite based. I'm uploading directly through my iPhone, through apps, through satellite yeah. to social media, schools, etc. So the technology exists to expand the capability of the phone dramatically. So tell me a little bit more about that, because like you said, the, the mission of this, of this foundation is to bring is to expose children all over the world to the entire world. Uh, how, how do you go about bringing them with you, both literally and over social media? So there's two, two styles, right? So on my own expeditions... It's I'm I'm you know and everything's free of charge, one hundred percent free of charge. On my own expeditions, I'm leveraging the corporate partnerships I have to have bandwidth on satellite and everything else to make an immersive experience for students. So when I'm in when I ran across Mongolia over two thousand kilometers through the the Gobi Desert, we were able to and that we had a small crew, they were shooting daily um videos of the culture the landscape of Mongolia during a very special period, a cultural period called Madan that happens every summer in Mongolia. So they were able to capture that, edit that on a day-to-day basis. We would upload photos or video footage of what my team was capturing. And then I would get the POV stuff while I'd be crossing some crazy part of the desert, super remote for 40 miles, 50 miles. And then I would meet up at camp and I would give them my footage that I would capture. And then they would, uh, you know, with the iPhone, whatever, and they would they would edit that and, and upload. So that goal is, by virtue of technology, bring students from the classroom onto my expedition, bring the yeah. expedition into the classroom. Mm. But on the other end of it is Impossible to Possible, which is the nonprofit. And what we do there is we bring young people between 16 and 21 on learning-based expeditions around the world that are sort of modeled on my own. They're not 2,000 kilometers. <laughs> They're more like 200 kilometers. The danger level they, might be adjusted. <laughs> the danger levels, but they're not. They're not easy trips. We've been yeah. to Central Amazon jungle two times. We've been to the Amazon jungle. We've been to Tunisia. We've been to Rajasthan. We've been all over the place. And every time we go on an expedition with these young people, we change the subject of study. So when we went to Southern Utah, we studied the rise of the dinosaurs. And so while our youth ambassadors ran to this amazing and ancient landscape of Utah, they would meet up with University of Utah paleontologists at dig sites and help dig for dinosaur bones and cast dinosaur bones. And this would be broadcast live through the web. So running through Utah, running through time, age of the dinosaurs, right? And then we would go to Tunisia. We've been to Tunisia running across the sand dunes in the Sahara Desert, learning about the preciousness of clean water to the people of North Africa. And so you you get the picture. The expeditions are used as a relevant thread to the subject that we want to teach. And our youth ambassadors on these expeditions teach the subject. There's no – the qualification, everybody's on a level playing field, and we have a team that selects who gets because we can only afford to take five, six – four or five, six kids at a time. But they have criteria, they pick the kids, and off we go. And like you said at the beginning of this, you're producing all of this material with your iPhones, with your, with your MacBook Pros. And I assume it has a, sort of a, an exponential factor where those kids then end up influencing their classrooms and more people beyond them. Oh, we'll have – on an ITP Youth Expedition, we've had tens of thousands of students following on the, the more sort of robust – 
uh, you know, uh, audience numbers have been in that range. And that includes everybody from schools from all over the world, every spot in the world. If they have an internet connection, right, then they can jump onto the website and be part of it. And we were creating low bandwidth sites uh, for a long period of time so that schools that didn't have access to fastest internet um, could still access our websites, our learning-based websites, while on expedition because everything was a lower bandwidth. Schools that did not have access to internet and that contacted us, we would do the expedition follow up later by sending them content but during the expedition do satellite phone calls so we could call their phone and do an immersive experience anyhow in the classroom so technology i think is a very important part of learning um but yeah we have so much content and have created so much content over the years uh we've done 15 youth expeditions you know amazing do you have any advice for people who are doing not you know not not at the scale i don't think many people operate at the scale but just someone who is hiking or someone who is running trails or or doing any of the things that you do for how they can create better content or better show what they're what they're doing with their iphone with with their technology wow it's a great, you know, I think framing uh, a shot is everything. I'm saying that and I'm not perfectly framed here at my house <laughs> doing this. With the idea. But framing a shot, I think, is critical. And then if you're using one of the newer iPhones, you have the ultra zoom, an ultra wide mode yeah. uh, on um, the 11 Pro. That opens up the possibilities so much, so much. And filming... Look, everybody chooses to film at a different rate. I, I shoot 4K24. That's what I like to shoot in, <laughs> right? Too. And, I, you know, it's kind of became a thing. I mean, some people think of 4K30, but it's I like the feel of the 4K24. Yeah. And obviously for social media, it's going to get reduced to 1080 anyhow. But even in the reduction to 1080, I think I just think it maybe it's just superstition or whatever you want to call it. But it feels no, it looks better. different to me. Yeah, yeah. You know, so that's the other thing. When shooting video, uh, you know, that's critical. And I also say to people when they're on their trips and they're shooting with their iPhones, whether it's video or photo, if it's photo, burst mode, use it all the time, yeah. as often as you can. Start filming before you want your shot and then roll into the shot and continue filming after your shot is over because you can always edit the shot after. Don't try to make it perfect right from the beginning because it never is. Then it looks like you're trying to make your shot perfect. So you, you mentioned a tripod. Is there any other accessories you take with you when you're typically out uh, running? Depend- well, when on my training runs, I always take, uh, obviously, my phone. I take the little mini tripod that weighs nothing so that I can yeah. get a shot. And we live really, we're, we're very fortunate to live in an amazing wilderness. It's so beautiful here. And so there's sometimes when I just want to set up the tripod, it, you know, there could be always wildlife. And so I'll set it up. And I'll just let it run yeah. for a minute or two when I'm seeing wildlife going by. And I just find even it, the stabilization is amazing in the phone. But it's so great to have that little bit extra stabilization yeah. from the little mini tripod that weighs nothing. It's like, I don't know, 75 or 80 grams. weighs nothing. All right. So uh, tangent. Uh, one of the things I'm doing on this season of the podcast is talking about transitions because I went from, uh, you know, for me, what was a big one, which was working for a corporation to being independent. But you went through an enormous transition when you got into the whole adventuring lifestyle. Can, and I've heard you speak about it before, but could you just mention how you got into doing what you do? Yeah, people ask me that all the time. They hear about me, uh, you know, and, and what I'm doing for the first time. And they're like, well, so the dude must have been running his yeah. entire life or something. And, and, and the truth is I haven't. I started running uh, 
around when I was 35. Uh, when I was 30, I decided that I was no longer satisfied with the life I was living, which was essentially partying constantly, smoking a pack of cigarettes a day, two packs if I was drinking heavy, and uh, doing nothing. I mean, uh, someone who was non-committal uh, to anything, you know, in my life. And, um, you know, I just got tired of it. I got tired of it. I, you know, I, I, I barely got out of high school, dropped out of community college. Uh, you know, I just couldn't find that, that, uh, passion in life. And I have a younger brother who's an amazing, uh, and very inspiring guy, amazing athlete, triathlete, climber, runner, mountain biker. He's just good at everything. And I saw him in the late nineties in a completely different way. He was sort of, he'd gone through a life transition of his own. He was as much of a partier as I, we grew up in a small town and we just said, good to, a lot of people did. I mean, when I, I don't remember again, I'm 51, right? Yeah. So a lot of people my age were drinking and, and, you know, doing a lot of bad things. So for our bodies. And so he goes through this transformation, he becomes this amazing athlete and he's so confident and he was living a life that he was so stoked about that it just was, it was very inspiring to me. And so I, you know, I decided I've got nothing to lose if I want to feel that way that he does, but to try and live perhaps the lifestyle that he lives. So, I mean, if, if he was, uh, you know, a technology expert, we would just be talking about technology and nothing yeah. else. That's what I'd be doing for the rest of my life. But he's an athlete. And so I just one step led to another. It took me three years to quit smoking. And I did. And I started pursuing a life in the outdoors, doing the things he was doing. One thing led to another. I entered my first foot race, which was a hundred mile running race in the Yukon. And I won it. And I knew that that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And so here we are now. You know, so and was the um, Yukon intentional? Like you didn't want to do like Montreal or Toronto first? No, you know, it just these things just sort of happened. I read an article. I was already adventure racing, which is a sort of a multi-sport activity. I was adventure racing like crazy. Um, so uh, I was racing mountain bikes. I was in the outdoors. That's where my head was. Yeah. And I was in my chiropractor's office and I picked up a magazine about outdoors. And in there was an article about ultramarathons. And the ultramarathon in particular was this one, the Yukon Arctic Ultra. And I thought, that's incredible that people do this. I wonder if I could do that. And that set in motion and everything. So that's, I entered. I had no money at the time. Dude. Like I had nothing, right? Wow. And I entered this race because simply because in this article, there were photos of people that were as normal as you and I doing something so extraordinary attempting to run a hundred miles and there was even longer events in the yeah. same race they had longer how do these people do this like they must think that they're invincible like what gives them the confidence yeah. to do something like that so that's why i entered that race the, the, the whole purpose was to see did i have what they had that was always I kept, what can i learn from this and lo and behold almost dropped out halfway through the thing. I mean, it's a much longer story for another time, but I'll tell you, dude, I almost dropped out of that thing. And I, something compelled me to stick in and stay in and I finish it. I win this race. And I realized in that moment at this finish line that people truly underestimate themselves, people in general, all of us at one point or another in our lives, underestimate what we can do physically, mentally, emotionally. And I think that for me in that moment, that was my sort of epiphany. I was like, wow, I haven't even tapped into what I, I think I can do. And I started doing races all over the world, ultra marathons all over the world. And then one thing led to another, 
ran across the Sahara Desert, which yeah. was my first big expedition in 2006. And since then, all these expeditions all over the world, South Pole, Arctic, all the large deserts, you know, the Namib, the Mongolian, the Atacama Desert, et cetera. So is it more like you see what other people can do and you are you more competitive with yourself with like what the previous Ray has raced or done? What can the next Ray do? Or is it you see other people doing it and you wonder if you can go to that level or exceed that level? No, I, I think now, Renee, with all the expeditions since 2006, when we finished running the Sahara, we ran an average of 70 kilometers a day every day for 111 days straight across six countries yeah. in North Africa, including Libya, Mali, Niger. When we finished that, I thought, wow, I spent more time on my feet in the Sahara than I had in my entire life, basically, right? I mean, what, you know, what am I going to do next? And I committed to myself that whatever it was that I was going to do next was something that I, I drew tremendous interest and passion in wanting to pursue. And so that's how I ended up going to the South Pole unsupported 2009 um, with, with two of my buddies as well and crossed the Atacama Desert solo, the Gobi Desert solo, you know, these projects that, you know, some of them I wanted to do with people that I wanted to share that experience with. Other ones I wanted to do, I wanted to go solo and go as hard as I could and see what I could do, you know, and test myself with navigation and the extremes and everything else. And so it's, it's become an, it's an interesting thing. It's not about anyone else. And what I learned through adventure is that the things that we do in our lives that we get the greatest passion from or are the greatest challenges or have the greatest rewards are very relative to us as individuals. You can never compare your experience necessarily with anyone else. You can say, well, you know, uh, this person did that and I did this and they're two different things. But the way it feels to you is very relative only to one person and that's you. So the person who finishes their first 5K road race finishes it just gets across the finish line squeaks it out doesn't he he still can't imagine they did it the way they feel on that day is the same person who's the iron man world champion right or wins someone who wins a gold medal it's it's very relative to the individual you can't dive inside that person and really feel what it is that they're feeling just like the most difficult things that you go through in your life are very relative to you as an individual you can't compare that those tough times you can't you know, COVID's a great example. We're at home. You know, we can definitely say without a doubt, there's a lot of people that got a lot worse than we do. Yeah, we're stuck at home. There's people in Rome that are sitting in an apartment that's uh, two meters by two meters, yeah. and they're, they have no one in their house but in their apartment with them. Or there's people on the front lines. I yeah. see them in my grocery store. And I mean, you know, with minimal protection, putting their lives on the line so that people can eat, right? For sure, we can definitively say you know, that somebody's got to work. But the way you feel when you go through those times of your life that are very difficult, you can't compare it. It's, it's very relative to you. Dig what I'm saying? That's yeah, something no, I've learned from adventure, you know? Is there sort of a way that you use to pick your next adventure? Like, I know for sure if they opened up moon races or Mars races, you would be one of the first people on the shuttle to get there. But do you try to get a variety of things? If you did a desert, you want to do a rainforest next. Is it the place? Is it the time? Is there any sort it's, of criteria? It, it, I, you know, it's, it's, it comes – like it, it's there in my head. Okay. And, I, and when I'm in the expedition that I'm into, so when I start planning a year or two in advance for the next expedition – that's what I'm planning to do. Nothing else is in my mind. 
and then when that expedition is done, I know exactly what it is I want. It just comes to me, and then that's and and there's a, you know, since we ran across the Sahara in 2006, there has been various geographies around the world that I've made a list mentally, and I said, okay, I want to go to the Gobi Desert. I want to cross the whole Gobi Desert sometime, you know, and so I went and did it. So there are, you know, definitely those, and, there, and it's a random order, you know, it's what yeah. works at the time politically uh and and otherwise to make it happen all right do you have the next one lined up yet did anything that you can tell i got a couple of projects i got a couple projects lined up but i never say because during covid right now we don't know i had one project a major project that i was so stoked to do in october uh it was gonna take me a few months to get it done and everything's postponed because of covid so that'll be postponed to 2021 when i'm sure it's gonna happen i'll talk about it but i'm very much a person that until I know 100% I can get it done, I don't say anything. You can find Ray on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Just look for Ray Zahab, usually in the most extreme places on earth. Thanks for watching, and keep it locked to the podcast feed for more interviews. And remember, you can get early access to these podcast episodes and watch them in full-on video via patreon.com slash Ritchie or watchnebula.com slash Ritchie. Early access Patreon members also get to see scripts for most of the daily shows before they're even shot, as well as Discord, where we chat about Apple, gear, workflows, and more. And there are even ways to get your name in the description of every video or the credits. So if you want to be more involved in this community and contribute directly to the creation of these videos in future projects, check out patreon.com slash Renee Ritchie. And thanks, sincerely, for your support. None of this would be possible without you.